Lower your expectations. Done. <laughs> You know what? Things might suck right now, but they're not going to suck forever. You will be okay. Welcome to Hello PhD, a podcast for scientists and the people who love them. This week, we talk about how to keep some forward momentum when grad school starts to drag. Stay with us. And we're back. This is Hello PhD, episode 75. I'm Joshua Hall. And I'm Daniel Arneman. And we'll discuss the human side of science and life in the lab. Dan, IPAs are back. It is the ethanol section that we've all been waiting for. For those of you who just tuned in, uh, we had we have a slight preference for IPAs, I would say. Yeah, I'd say a very strong preference. Yeah, we got a little feedback. Yeah, you're toning that, uh, it down, yeah. <laughs> That maybe we could try some other beers, which we have. We did it. Yeah. And so we said, you know what? We're going to go IPA free until summer. And it is summer. Happy summer. The solstice has passed. That is true. So today we are starting off the show with Nectar IPA from Humboldt Brewing Company in California, somewhere in California, Ukiah, Ukiah, California. Do you know where that is, Dan? I sure don't, Josh. Where is it? I'm going to look it up. If you're going to ask with me the, a silly question, I'll ask you another one. The power of the internet and recording. This will, in no time, I'm going to have the answer to this question. Oh, Ukiah is in uh, Mendocino. It's in Mendocino County. It's the largest city in Mendocino County. Uh, what do you think of the beer, Dan? I'm a fan. Happy to have an IPA back in the studio. Okay, Josh, I'm reading here. It is a base of pale and crystal malts and... They say aggressively hopped. I agree with them. I'm looking for a list of which hops they use, and I don't see it. Um, 60 IBUs, though, so it's solid. Yeah, they say this one's aggressively hopped with the, uh, you mentioned the pale and crystal malts. It's definitely got some bitterness going on. Do you get some sweetness? I would think with a nectar, the name Nectar IPA, I'm imagining it's going to be a little sweet. I did on the very first drink, but I don't now. So it, whatever that sweetness was is gone. Yeah, it definitely has, I would say, um, some hoppy character from beginning to end, but you know, I'm a fan. Not bad. It's good to be back. Mm, the, the bitter, nice to have some bitterness back in the studio. All right, Dan. Well, a couple things I wanted to say. We got, we got an email this week that I wanted to read, and this comes from a listener, Christina, and she had some great things to say that I wanted to share with our listeners. So, do you mind if I read that? Go for it. All right, so this is from Christina. Hello, Daniel and Josh. Your podcast gives me more joy than I can express. I was resigned to leave academia until, among other nuggets of hope and encouragement, I heard Josh say not to base your career choice on your experience in grad school. Now I'm full on academia bound because I think I realized from that statement that my feelings going through graduate school might not be a reflection of how made for academia I am. They might be more a result of circumstance. I really thought if I'm not enjoying this then I'll really hate being in academia for a living. And as a result in change from a fixed mindset, this sucks, therefore it will always suck because I'm not good enough, to a growth mindset, this sucks now and what skills can I get to help me navigate this and grow from this challenge? I'm kicking ass in my last year of grad school. I've been happier and more productive than ever before. Thank you so much for the hope you give and the difference you've made. I know I can't be the only one who sees you as a light in the dark abyss that is grad school. I got chills. I'm 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 tearing up. Yeah, you know, 
Christina, thank you for actually uh, writing in and telling us that because, I mean, we, we've said it before, but this is literally why we started the show. Yeah, it's the only reason we, we keep coming back to do it is because um, we have such strong memories of, of all the things you that you wrote in that first uh, paragraph that it's hard, that it feels like it's never going to get any better, that... Um, you know, you feel like the victim of your circumstances and maybe you should just not do this job anymore. You're not cut out for it. And the truth is much more complex and much more hopeful. And I'm really happy to hear that uh, you're seeing some of that. Yeah, absolutely. And I think this is going to be a theme of this show um, as we as we move on with our topic. But I think one reason why we're able to, to do this show and talk about things the way we do is because we've been through grad school. We remember what that was like. But the fact we're not still in the middle of it, we have a little bit of that perspective that, oh, you know what? Here's a voice from the other side. It actually does get better. And, you know, there are things waiting for you that are not like what you're doing now. Yeah, that's right. I think, uh, you know, Josh, you and I were just talking the other day about how you know, we were in grad school in our 20s. Not everybody does that, but but that was the time for us. And that was not the best periods of our lives, right? Yeah. And, and it, it gets much better and it's much more flexible and it's much more interesting um, once you get through that process. But by going through it, I think a lot of opportunities open up. Absolutely. So thanks, Christina, for writing in. And that's a good reminder. We love to hear from our listeners. So um, if you want to share just what you like about the show, uh, we'd love to hear that. But also, if you have any great stories or things that you're going through personally in the lab, we would love to talk about them on the show. And so one thing I mentioned last week, specifically we would love to know if you have any great epic lab fail or crazy day in lab stories or just something really weird that's happened to you uh, in the I'm lab. St- I'm still trying to dig up my lab notebook, Josh. I have a list of lab fails. Don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> Let's move on to uh, science in the news. All right, this is a real treat because, Dan, you have a science in the news this week. I do, Josh. You know, we have been following uh, the Sci-Hub saga for the last couple of years, right? Yeah, we did a whole episode on Sci-Hub. So for people paying attention at home, Sci-Hub is this website that bypasses the paywalls put up by uh, research journals like uh, Science and Nature and any of the Elsevier journals. Um, And it lets people who maybe don't have access to those journals through their library or the university due to the high cost to get those articles. And it is super, super against the law. You know, I was going to say this is like Napster for research papers, but I don't know if our listening audience actually uh, knows or appreciates what Napster was for music back Uh, when we were in college. All right, old man. (laughs) It's like BitTorrent. Yeah, but it's it's not peer-to-peer sharing. It's just, it's using um, people who do have access to those journals Mm. and getting around the the paywalls with them. Yeah, you know, actually, I follow um, several academics on Twitter and there's one uh, fairly fairly prominent um, PI who every time he will mention a, a study or a paper, he will post the Sci-Hub link to the paper. Oh, is that right? Yeah. Oh, and he hasn't gotten any cease and desist? I, well, I guess not. He's still doing it. I saw him do it this week. So Yeah, so we have an update. Um, obviously, we're interested in this story, and, and we are interested in the implications for publishing, scientific publishing particularly. So what happened this week is Elsevier was awarded a $15 million judgment in a case they brought in New York State against Sci-Hub, and I think specifically against the founder of Sci-Hub, um, Alexandra Elbakayan. Um, she's a Russian, uh, was a, a researcher and turned programmer who actually developed this platform. So wait a second, wait a second. So is there jurisdiction there? 
You know, great, like, great question. I don't. How how are they going to actually enforce this judgment? Uh, so that's the upshot. I the the you know the question that springs to mind is like, what does this mean? What is it going to do? Um, is she going to have to pay this fifteen million dollars? She did not show up at the trial. She did not represent herself. <laughs> you don't say. And, and she you know she said she would not. She said I'm not going to go to this. SciHub is still online. They have uh, done multiple attempts to take it down, but they just moved the server to a new place. Um, where it remains online, not that I know. Well, I imagine the the server is not in the United States, right? That's it's the not, whole point. And, it, and it moves around all the time, so mm-hmm. it's not in one place um, at one time. It's in multiple places and many times. Um, so they're unlikely to pay any fines, and this is not likely to take down the website. This is um, a statement, I think, by the court system about the legality of what SciHub is doing. So, yeah, you know, Dan, yeah, this seems very similar to what the music industry went through, you know, maybe five years ago where, you know, there was all the peer to peer sharing and all the, all that was going on and the, the major record record labels really didn't like it. And so their response was, well, we're going to start going after individual people to make a statement. We're going to levy these huge fines against them. But really, I mean, this cat's out of the bag. I mean, the information's out there. Let's say SciHub gets shut down. How long before the next SciHub pops up somewhere else? And and there's more than one service like this already. So, absolutely. So you're absolutely right. And I think the analogy to the music industry is a really good one because the music industry went after not individuals necessarily who downloaded a song or five. They went after people who were uploading songs. So they're, they were trying to go after the source and slap them with really heavy fines to discourage people who would share. Um, that's what they've done here with SciHub. Um, but of course, the, the fine is not going to stick. I thought it was really interesting. The this president and CEO of the AAP, the Association of American Publishers. Oh, is this like the RIAA but for um, publishers? Sure, let's go with yes. It's it's going to sound similar. So uh, Maria A. Palanti climbed off of her high horse for a minute, Ooh. climbed onto her high horse, and said, "As the final judgment shows, the court has not mistaken illegal activity for public good." On the contrary, it has recognized the defendant's operation for the flagrant and sweeping infringement that it really is and affirmed the critical role of copyright law in furthering scientific research and the public interest. Let me just unpack this a minute. Mm. So so the court has not mistaken illegal activity for public good. Um, I don't think that's what the court did. The court judged the legality, not the moral justice of the act, right? Yeah, I would say uh, emphasis mine on uh, <laughs> Maria's right. statement, right? Right, and I think the her final statement is really interesting to me, which is uh, the critical role of copyright law in furthering scientific research and public interest. Yeah, I mean, really... What does that mean? Yeah, no, seriously, I think we owe a lot to copyright law uh, for scientific advancement, right? What? Are you are you you're trolling me? <laughs> yeah. Okay. I, I think that's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. The critical role of copyright law in furthering scientific research for public interest. It's too bad we. That's never, ridiculous. We never learned about Gregor Mendel's P experiments because he didn't have it copyrighted. Leave it to us, uh, inside the paywall. And so this is where I think many scientists are, which is yes, it is illegal. It violates a, a law that's on the books. But is there a moral justice? Is there a is there a component of this that this research should not be uh, locked up behind paywalls because it is obviously funded by, um, in most cases, government dollars that pay for the materials and the work. Uh, they pay the the salaries of the researchers who are doing the peer review, 
And then governments and, and universities and libraries are the ones paying for access to the journals. So, so they're paying three times for this research. And um, at, that, at the same time, these publishing companies are making something like 36% profit, um, which is more than Apple and Google and Amazon. You know, I wonder if maybe, you know, like happened with the, to go back to the music industry analogy, I wonder if we're on the cusp of, of a fundamental change. Because with the music industry, what eventually happened is they realized, okay, we have to rethink this. And now we have these things like Spotify and Apple Music, these cloud-based subscription services where you pay one fee and you get access to everything. Uh, I wonder if this could be a future where, you know, some of these publishers decide, okay, you know what? Just going after uh, individual lawsuit by individual lawsuit, this is not going to do anything. So let's band together and have this one unified subscription service where you get access to everything as kind of a last stand. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, yeah. I think I think you're onto something though, Josh. It's the SciHub and the sites like it are not going to be the answer. Just the same way that that outright piracy of music was not the the final solution. But I think scientists publishing in open access journals making that choice. That's a better way to slay this giant than um, trying to get around the copyrights. Yeah, and I've talked to a number of faculty who who are bypassing some of these higher profile journals to publish in open source journals. Um, but I'll, I'll say also, Dan, I had some personal experience with this. The NIH is very serious about this public access policy. Um, and you, our listeners might remember we discussed this on the SciHub um, episode, but any research that's funded by government dollars by NIH dollars is now required to be uploaded into this database, this PubMed Central that's accessible to the public no more than a year after the publication date. And I will say, Dan, I recently put in a grant um, and there was a paper associated with this grant that did not have a PMC ID, which is a PubMed Central ID indicating it's been uploaded in that database. And they have people who are going through grants making sure that all the publications that are federally funded actually comply with this public access policy. Um, so I think that's really great. Yeah, that is great. And and uh, there's an article out uh, just this week from The Guardian that I think is really worth reading. Um, it's called, Is the Staggeringly Profitable Business of Scientific Publishing Bad for Science? And it's, it's one of their long reads written by Stephen Branyi. And uh, it, it details the history of how we got this method of publishing scientific papers. It's not that it was always this way in the 1600s and 1700s. Um, it really grew up in the middle of the last century, and it has some big implications for how science is done. And one of the most interesting parts of the article is how difficult it is to dismantle this system. There, there, are, there have been attempts in the past, and they have failed. Man, we should do a whole episode on that. Yeah, you know, Dan, something that's always struck me as a little odd is these for-profit um, scientific publishers. One of the huge labor-intensive parts of publishing science is the peer review process. And the scientists who are acting as peer reviewers for these for-profit journals are not being paid. They're doing it as volunteer labor <laughs> on top of that, right? So Yeah, they're being paid by their institutions. So somebody's paying them for this time. But they're not being paid for that time. No, they're not. Right? Yeah. They're not being paid by the person making the money off of the article being published. That's great. Yeah. Wow. So, totally wild. Um, we're going to continue to follow this story. I don't think it's anywhere near an ending, or maybe not even near a middle. Um, clearly, the, these sites are going to be difficult to take down, and they're going to continue to have an impact on scientific publishing. Can we make an official Hello PhD statement that uh, the Hello PhD podcast is decidedly pro-public access for scientific research? 
I'm, if you haven't figured that out by listening yet, then uh, yeah, we, you know, we talk about it so often because I, it's so important. It is the currency of science, as, as we often say, but um, it's the way we, we build on what we know is by publishing. If we do it the wrong way, we're going to um, be much slower at learning and, and draw the wrong conclusions, I think. No, you're right. And something you said really did strike me is at least in the United States, the vast majority of research is publicly funded, right? That's taxpayer dollars, right? That's everybody who's walking around out there, whether they're a scientist or a pizza chef or they're a plumber, part of their paycheck is going to fund this work that hopefully is going to benefit the society they live in and maybe their life, their health, but they don't have access to see what we're doing, right? And that's that's not a good situation. So stay tuned. We will keep our eyes on it. And that was Science in the News. Great. Thanks, Dan. All right, let's move on to our topic. So I came across this article on a blog called the Academic Mental Health Collective. Um, It's a resource for grad students and postdocs. And most of the posts focus on um, helping grad students and postdocs stay in a healthy place with regard to their mental health, which is great. And so they actually had an article they had posted that was written by a grad student from the University of Bath. Her name's Tamson. Actually, she has her own blog, which is pretty great. It's healthpsychtam.com. And so this post, also a great site. I, I read some of her blogs. She had some neat things to say. Um, but anyway, she wrote a post that's called When Things Suck and You Still Have a PhD to Do, Seven Tips to Get Stuff Done. Dan, did, did things ever suck for you in grad school? Oh my gosh, where were these articles? <laughs> I don't know. I feel like uh, obviously things sucked. And, and if that wasn't clear, uh, go back and listen to, I think, episode four or something where I detail my entire saga. But I don't think I knew that it sucked for everybody else. It's so refreshing to hear that other people have struggles. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, like we alluded to when we read Christina's email, you know, that went along with our motivation too, is realizing that you know, we see that now. That seems obvious now. Yeah, but yeah this is hard for, for almost everyone, if not everyone. But the real, the real challenge kicks in, or at least compounds, when you think you are unique in the fact that you're struggling. Yeah, and there are thousands of ways that it can suck. And we've, we've covered some of them. Your PI could go crazy and do something terrible. Your experiment could fail. Your mouse colony could die. Your cultures could get contaminated. Your best friend could have a problem. Your, you know, it, it goes on and on and on, and it's, it's never the same story. Mm-hmm. But what it leads to is demotivation, uh, a feeling of just totally being stuck, and then looking out at this 100-mile-long road that you've got to continue to walk down or you're not going to get that degree at the end. Yeah, I mean, it feels like forever when you're in the middle of it. And I really do think that one of the key factors of PhD training that makes it so stressful, at least makes the stress worse, is this lack of a finite ending to it. I totally agree. You know, you have no clue when you're going to be done. You know, if you're a med student or a dental student, you know on day one, if I do all the stuff on this date, four years from now, I'm going to have this degree. But as a graduate student, you don't have that luxury. You really don't know, well, three years from now, am I going to be done? Four years from now, am I going to be done? I don't know. And it's not the same skill set you got to use in, in your other schooling where I'm going to study and I'm going to take tests and then I'm going to study and then I'm going to write papers. And when I do that, then I'm done. In, in research, 
I've got to get experiments to work. And no one's ever tried this before. And this reagent, you know, doesn't actually work. And I've got to come up with a new one and send away, you know, it's, it's on and on and on and on. And it can really, I think, wear on your soul when you're going through it. Yeah, absolutely. So one of the quotes from, from the intro to this article, uh, I think this really frames it, frames the importance of having this discussion. It's inevitable that during the course of a PhD, personal issues will come along, but they don't have to mean the end of your doctoral pursuit. And in fact, they could help you find a new way of doing things that will help you in the future. So I was having a conversation with a couple of grad students um, late last week. It was a third and fourth year grad student. And we were, we were talking about just this very thing that inevitably at some point during your PhD, things will suck. And so they were kind of going through some of the frustrations they were experiencing um, at the moment. And, you know, we talked about how really everyone who is doing research, the graduate level or as a postdoc, your project's going to hit a wall. You're not going to know what to do next. You're not going to know where to turn. Maybe you'll have tension with your advisor. You'll have anxiety about your career. Is this even what I want to do, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, then I was pairing that, that thought that, okay, everyone in grad school hits this wall and has this stress and has this doubt with the other side, which, which is, you know, our own experience, the people we know that we went to grad school with, and also a lot of the people we've met and talked to who are on the other side of graduate training. And I don't know, Dan, almost without exception, almost everyone I know post-PhD is pretty happy and satisfied with their career and certainly in a much better place uh, than they were when they were in grad school. Yeah, it's night and day for for many of us uh, how different it feels to be on the other side of it. So yes, I agree with you. Yeah, and in many cases, you know, you needed that degree to get to the place you are, to get to this fulfilling career. Uh, But I think what can be really, really critical is maintaining that perspective that, okay, you know what? This is not my final destination, right? This is my temporary stepping stone to somewhere else. Um, this is a holding ground. I'm not going to be here. This is not my forever. Right. And, and we heard that in Christina's email earlier. She said, I feel like because this is bad, that I'm just not the right person to do science for the rest of my life. And I think what you're saying is, yep, this can be bad. And you're still the person that should be doing science forever. Yeah, absolutely. There, there's not a way to draw a conclusion from your grad school experience necessarily that this is uh, the worst path for you. Yeah, you know, I, I liken it to uh, being a parent. So I don't know if any of our listeners have kids. I know you do, Dan. I am. I got and, kids. You know, I can vividly remember when my wife and I had our first child and we had a newborn. We'd never had a newborn before. And for those of you who have never had one, it's really stressful. Pretty great. They, nope, nope. <laughs> they they cry, they don't sleep, they can't communicate with you, so you don't know what's wrong. And Doctors it, recommend you do not shake them. That's, <laughs> that's right. We do know that. But I remember, you know, I remember being in the middle of that. This is really hard. We're not sleeping. Things aren't going well, but we don't know how to make it better. And I remember at one point just telling my wife, like, I don't think I can keep doing this. And, and you can't take it back. Well, and the, in the hospital won't take them. <laughs> they, well, I heard you can actually drop them off at the fire station now. That's but you didn't. But I did yeah. it. Yeah, we did. And I'm glad. I'm glad we didn't, just to set the record straight. But what I, what I realized now, having perspective, you know, my kids are much older now, and, and they sleep, and they communicate, and it's great, is that was a very temporary period of time. But when I was in the middle of it, I had these very real, visceral feelings of, I can't do this forever, but I didn't have the perspective to know, oh, I'm not going to have to. And had I realized how temporary that stage was, it would have been way less stressful. So when we had our second child, he was an infant, just like the first child, he cried, he didn't sleep. But I knew, hey, you know what? This is, 
this is a very finite period of time. So I think I can manage it. You had a, a sense for how time passes and, and how he progressed and it followed the same pattern. Um, I'm, I'm reminded of something somebody told me when we had kids and I think it might apply to grad school as well. I'm, you'll have to see if you agree with this, but they said um, when you have kids, days are long and years are short. Mm, yes. So every day feels like it's an eternity and you know, when will this thing end? But then you, you, turn your head and three years are gone or five years are gone or whatever it is. And it's, it's a really bizarre uh, experience, but I think that might describe grad school too. Yeah. I mean, that's totally true, Dan. I mean, just last night we, um, we spent some time with a friend who was in town that, that was a, a good friend when we were in grad school. And man, on one hand, that seems like eternity ago, right? It was eternity ago, <laughs> technically, yeah. Uh, but, it, but it went so fast, right? When we look at it in the middle of it, I definitely can remember I didn't feel that way. No, it was, yeah, it, it felt like um, a never-ending uh, process. And every day you had to wake up and drag yourself into lab to make that one experiment work again. Um, but yeah, looking back. Yeah, I mean, more years have gone by since we finished than we actually were spent in grad school, which is hard to believe. I'm so old. <laughs> Maybe we should stop talking about this. We're going to sound like... I'm doing a lot of old man talk tonight. I gotta gotta check that. Should we go um, pick out headstones? <laughs> well, let's let's get into some of these some of these strategies. All right. So here are some yeah, things. Hopefully, we frame the problem. If you <laughs> if you are the person who is in grad school right now and everything has gone perfectly the entire time, just save this episode for later. For the rest of you, here we go. Here we go. All right. So so the first tip is to step back. Okay. So this can be really hard to do, right? You're in the middle of it, banging your head against the wall. Your whole life is this project. But sometimes what you have to do is actually get some perspective. So you need to step away from the project, step out of the middle of the tar pit. Um, and what this distance can do is this can allow you to get a more broad perspective. And so the idea of this is just to kind of assess, almost like if you were the, the Jane Goodall who's kind of taking a look at what's going on in this situation, to really analyze What's my problem here? What am I actually struggling with? Is it a scientific problem? Maybe. Or is it an emotional problem? Am I stressed? Am I overextended? Because what you do next will differ depending on what the problem actually is, but sometimes it can be really hard to determine what the problem is when you're right in the middle of the fire. I can imagine this taking a number of different levels, like you're saying. So I remember talking with you once about when you went and explained your research to high schoolers or something like that, you developed a new love for it, right? You stepped out of the, the day-to-day work in the lab. You put your research in the context of how it was actually helping society, and it made you appreciate it again. Mm-hmm. I could also imagine I'm, I'm banging my head on this experiment because I said I was going to do it, but then if I step back a little bit and I say, well this figure doesn't make any sense in the paper I'm trying to write. There's another experiment that would be much better. Maybe I don't need to do this at all. But it, but I think we get into this situation where it's like, I got to get this PCR to work and I'll do it and do it again and again and again and again when it turns out maybe that's not even the experiment you should be doing. No, that's totally true. And, and I think one of the things you're touching on is is don't lose sight of the why, right? Because it's so easy when you're a grad student, a postdoc, you're at the bench technically doing things every day, your whole life can easily become about getting that PCR to work, getting the right primers that are going to, that are going to work. Why are they not working? But on its face, that's not very interesting, right? But what you, what you have to do is not totally allow yourself to disconnect that day-to-day 
those day-to-day tasks you're doing with the big picture of the importance of what you're doing and how it fits into some broader context. How does it fit into this paper? How does it fit into my field? How does it fit into my career path? I mean, they're all different questions. How is this beneficial to society? Why is this exciting? Because, I mean, I would hope at some at some point when you decided to choose that thesis advisor or join that lab, there was something about that research that you thought was important or cool. Um, so try to don't try not to lose that connection with your day-to-day experiments and that really cool thing that initially motivated you. All right. So the next thing, once you've stepped back and you've kind of identified what your problem is, is to be honest. Okay. And so this is not just being honest with yourself about what you're struggling with, but identifying what type of struggles you're having may indicate you need to be honest with some other people uh, to seek out some, some support. So, for example, maybe you need to tell some of your friends and colleagues that, or, or maybe you need to tell some of your friends that you're having a hard time. Maybe you've disconnected from some of your support network because you've been so wrapped up in in your project and in your research, and maybe that's actually what you need. Or maybe you need to talk to you need to talk to your research advisor or you need to talk to a director of graduate studies in your department because you really are having some um, some technical issues that you don't know how to address. And maybe it's time to bring in uh, some scientific support also to get some new ideas. This is the place that imposter syndrome is going to try and drag you back into the murky depths of being by yourself and trying to figure it out yourself because nobody wants to go to their PI and say, I can't get this experiment to work. Mm -hmm. And nobody wants to say to the director of graduate studies, I am experiencing the symptoms of depression and I need to know what resources are available to help me uh, work through this. You know, imposter syndrome is, is going to try to grab you and, and hold on to you. So it's, it's just so important that, you find that one person you trust, and it, it probably doesn't matter who it is, but but that you can actually reach out and get that kind of support. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you know, Dan, one thing that I, I say to students all the time is certainly in graduate school, one of the things you're, you're trying to do is you're moving towards becoming an independent scientist, an independent researcher. But what that doesn't mean, being independent does not mean being isolated. And so part of being independent sometimes means knowing when you need to reach out for support and knowing that, you know what, now I've come to a point where for me to move, move this project forward, I actually need some help. And that might be scientific help, but part of that also is maybe you need some emotional support. And so being able to get that support to get you back where you need to be so you can continue your project forward is really important. So, so be honest, not just with yourself, but being honest with those around you um, when you need support. Awesome. You want to hit us with number three? Yeah. So number three is be realistic. Okay. And so this is a tricky one because most people, by the time you get to a PhD program, you wouldn't have gotten to the PhD program if you hadn't been working really hard and been really committed to um, your studies and to school. You probably did well in high school. So you got into college and you did well in college. So you got into grad school. You did well in grad school. So now you're a postdoc or whatever. And so it can be really hard to drop some of these perfectionist tendencies um, when we start to get this feeling like, you know what, maybe I do need to back off. I do need to take some perspective because I think what we can do if we're not careful is we can think I shouldn't need to do that. I don't want to be, I don't want to be weak. I don't want, is this going to hurt my chances of doing well? Like it's almost like taking our foot off the gas. Uh, We see that as some real indictment on our own ability or some negative. Um, So, yeah, I think we need to be be realistic about what we what we really need. 
in that moment. And so in, in this case, it's like, um, I probably need a Saturday to go to the beach and unwind, but everybody else is in lab, so I, I'm going to go to work. You know what I mean? Um, it's it's recognizing there's a, you know, you have needs other than just doing research, and uh, you've got to be, it's part of being honest, but it's it's like taking the opportunity to take care of yourself. Attach your own mask before you attach the masks of others, as they say on the airplane. Yeah, and I think, you know, I think the lie you could tell yourself in that situation is, all right, you know what? It's Memorial Day. I want to go to the beach with these friends, but I know there's going to be people in the lab. If I don't go to the lab, everybody's going to think I'm a slacker. And if I don't do the PCR today, then this is there's going to be this butterfly effect and eventually my whole life is going to go to crap. And that's not realistic. The reality is you may actually have a more productive week right. if you actually you know go spend time with your friends on this holiday, right? Uh, that may actually realistically be the thing you need to do. The next one, I really like this one, and I think it's related to being realistic, and that is lower your expectations. Done. <laughs> uh, already at rock bottom, so next. No, this is a good one, uh, and I think it is related to what we just said. You know, sometimes less is more. Um, I, I heard this, I was I was watching this TED Talk the other day, and it was one of, one of the things the speaker talked about is we have this thing we do, um, certainly in the United States, maybe maybe other places as well, where let's say we we do something, we accomplish something. Very seldom we don't give ourselves we don't give ourselves much time to bask in the glow of our accomplishments. We're not like, hey, you know what? I'm really glad that I graduated from college. That's really cool. But what do we do? We immediately move the goalpost of what success means. So success is always this moving target over the horizon that we never really allow ourselves to achieve. And so that can really have negative consequences. So sometimes it's okay and necessary to lower the bar um, that we're trying to jump over. Uh, I actually did this in grad school. I remember I was reaching a point where yeah, I feel like experiments were starting to not work and I was starting to make mistakes and I was having trouble juggling things. And I realized what I was doing was you know, maybe I was trying to, to cram four or five different experiments into the day, right? I'm like, okay, while this is in the 30-minute incubation in the water bath, I'm going to set up this PCR. Okay, now while that's going, I'm going to like get these other things ready. And I realized I was just getting things confused and I was screwing up and nothing seemed to be working. Yeah, your lab experience is like working in a commercial kitchen on one of those <laughs> Food Network shows, right? Where it's, yes, chef, and you're slinging potatoes. Oh, yeah. Every, yeah, it was a disaster. And so what I realized was, okay, you know what? I need to slow down. I'm going to map out what's the most important experiment I need to do right now. I'm just going to do that. Like, I'm going to focus on doing this one thing, and we'll see how that goes. And at first, that was really hard because I'm like, oh, I'm such a slacker. I'm not going to get much done. But you know what? Things started working, right? When I was really yeah. thinking through plan planning it out and giving each experiment the actual uh, mental energy that it needed, not just to plan it, but to set it up and to get everything labeled and to get my notebook written out and actually execute it and then collect the data and analyze it properly. And I actually realized I was making faster progress when I started trying to do less than when I was trying to just <laughs> like crazily cram all this stuff in. So can we relabel this one, not lower your expectations, but just slow down? And and pay attention. Yeah, I think that would be good. Because I'm as you're talking about, it, I'm just thinking to myself, it's like, yeah, I had I had my whatever experiment I had going, but then I also was trying to stain some cells, you know, split some cells, 
make some media. We had to autoclave this. I need to run and get lunch. And, I, and I, as you're talking about it, I'm just thinking to myself of this list of things that I was always trying to get done. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, the main experiment that I was working on, I've messed it up or I forgot about it in the incubator or whatever it was. Or I was so exhausted by the end of the day, I just didn't have the patience to write my lab notebook. Yeah, you're right. And it turns out sometimes that's a really important thing to do. And as a scientist, I think sometimes we don't, and not not just in science, but but in lots of things we're trying to do, we cram so many things on our calendar that we don't give ourselves time to think. We don't give ourselves some space to just really ponder on what we're doing and really think about what we're doing because we're just doing, doing, doing uh, without a whole lot of thought. And I don't know that that's necessarily the best way to move forward. So anyway, lower your expectations or slow down. All right, the next one is get support. I think we talked about this, but it's probably worth reiterating. There is no weakness at all in knowing you need some extra help. In fact, one of the things we've started telling graduate students um, when they start at our institution is there will come a time when you are going to need help. So here are some resources for when you're going to inevitably need need them. Yeah, and it's worth saying the resources are much better than they used to be. I mm-hmm. mean, there are um, there are career counseling services available now, and I think when we were in grad school, there there were career counselors for the undergraduate part of campus, not for anybody that had uh, any kind of scientific uh, research background, and so. When I went and visited those career counselors, trying to figure out what I wanted to be when I grow up, they gave me the same tests and the same advice that the undergrads were getting, but it, was, it wasn't it was relevant to what I needed to do as a PhD. Mm-hmm. So that's available. I think there are mental health resources available now. There are, I don't know, you, you can probably list the, the different ways that you can get support that didn't exist. Yeah, and you know, sometimes it's just a matter of Again, I mean, a lot of these these kind of fuse together. It could just be having an open and honest conversation with your PI or going and talking to a trusted member of your committee that, like, I'm really struggling right now. Um, but, you know, it may be beyond that. Maybe you do need to seek out some help from uh, mental health services on your campus. I remember when I was in grad school, I was writing my dissertation and you know, I had an anxiety attack during that time. and It happens. It absolutely happens. And I realized, you know, what I need is I need to talk to somebody about this. So I went out in the community and I found a counselor that I could just talk through some of these things uh, for a couple months while I was writing my dissertation. And that was super helpful. And I'm glad I did that. There's no shame in that. There's no weakness in that. Part of being strong is knowing when you need help. And along those lines comes the next one. That is think ahead. And and I alluded to this just a second ago, Dan, and that is you will face challenges. So what's important is anticipate what challenges you might face and then develop a plan for how you might deal with that when it happens. And this is kind of the best case scenario, right? Not waiting till you're in crisis to come up with an idea of what you're going to do, but almost having, I'm not saying you have to write it out, but maybe you could. You know, when I get to a point where I feel overwhelmed or stressed, here's what I'm going to do. And you think about those things when you're in a place that is less is less stressful. Um, and so some of these things could be inform yourself about, okay, who is my director of grad studies? What does that person do? What are the counseling services available on campus? What are their phone numbers? The insurance that I get as a student or postdoc, what does that cover? Does it have mental health coverage? That way, when you're in the middle of crisis, you don't have to figure out these things that are going to add additional barriers that are going to prevent you from getting the help you need. Yeah, you're not going to want to do the in-network, out-of-network 
cost comparison <laughs> when you're... No, you're going to say, screw it. I can't yeah. think about this right now. Um, and, you know, it might also be something simpler. It might be start a, starting a support group with other students when things are going well. Dan, that's something we did. We had a quarter-life crisis support group <laughs> when right. we were in grad school. I mean, we didn't plan for it. It just happened, but yeah. Yeah, yeah. and that was, that was literally just us getting together on a certain day of the week, having a beer together and just talking about what's going on. Yeah, that's right. Um, part of this, I, I think anybody listening to the podcast right now is getting the benefit of some of this, right? We get emails and, and um, tweets and things from current students and postdocs. We have our own experiences. We interview um, you know, different people in the field. And what they're telling you are about their experiences. And so you're, you're getting a taste right now of, okay, well, I might not feel that way today, but if I ever, you know, need to know what to do when I have a panic attack, when I'm writing my dissertation, this, you know, here's an example of somebody else who went through that and here's what I can do about it. So just being part of this podcast conversation, I think you're hearing about things that hopefully you never have to face personally, but if you do, you've got uh, a resource and a story that backs it up. Absolutely. And the last one, Dan, is trust yourself. I think this circles us back to where we started Trusting yourself means realizing that, you know what, things might suck right now, but they're not going to suck forever. You will be okay. And so I just want to reiterate what we said at the beginning. It does get better. Grad school is a temporary step, and it is hard. It's not just you. It's hard. It's hard for everyone. And so realizing that, you know, the reason I'm here is not to be here forever, but it's actually to get to this career that hopefully is going to be really fulfilling, really satisfying, and most likely nothing like grad school at all. And so trust us, all the people I've talked to who are post-grad school are really happy. I was, at a, I was at a conference last week, Dan, and one of the presenters did some research where she actually surveyed thousands of people who were post-graduate school. These were all science PhDs. And one of the questions that she asked them in the survey was very simple. It was, are you happy with your career? It was broken down in different types of careers, like I'm an academic, PI, or I'm out of academia, or I'm an industry, or something else entirely. And what was really amazing was that across all careers, it was around 90% of people were happy with what they were doing. They were happy with the work. 90%, no matter whether they were a PI or not a PI or in academia or out of academia. And so what that said to me was, you know what? All this work you're putting in, this PhD really can open up some doors to some really fulfilling careers, a really good life. Uh, but we have to not be taken out of the game by the stress that we're going through in grad school. Because I think that would be too bad to like exit the path just because grad school sucks. When you realize this will end, this will pass and things will be better. I think that's really helpful, Josh. Um, I guess as we close out, I don't know if this is actually seven things or three things or five things that are overlapping. Um, my own summary is, I think, slow down, um, ask for help. Remember why you're doing whatever it is you're doing, why you got into grad school in the first place, why you're doing the research you're doing, and be kind to yourself. Don't be your own enemy by by beating yourself up or having expectations or doubting yourself. Um I don't know if does that does that encompass it for you? Yeah, I think that's great, Dan. And you know, if you're listening to this and maybe 
And if you're having a hard time, feel free to reach out to us. We would love to talk about your situation. Or if you have been through a hard time, you've hit the wall, and maybe you've done some of these things, or maybe you've done, maybe you did some different things that really helped you to get your motivation back and to help you push through. Um, let us know what those things are so we can share those with other people because they might find what you did to be really what they need to hear right now also. Excellent. We look forward to hearing from you. And if you're ready, sir, we will do an etymology puzzle. I'm ready for it. Okay, the clue last week uh, was a little bit trickier, maybe. Uh, And the clue read, My reflection appears small and doll-like when I gaze into your eyes. This is more a romantic one for us, Josh. I like it. You had some creepy ones there for a few weeks. I'm glad we're back to something a little more palatable. Yeah. Thinking about this is going to be something where we're seeing a reflection in the eyes. Cornea... And, yeah. and this one drew on the clue from last week where doll-like was the word pupa. Oh, well, <laughs> I'm going to guess pupil. You got it, absolutely. Right. Yep, the center of the eye uh, coined in the early 15th century. So I think what's really fascinating about this, and, and the reason that this struck me is, you know, you've known the word pupil in your eye since you were a little kid, probably, when you learned the parts of the eye. Um, but it's actually named that because when when people look into other people's eyes, they see a small reflection of themselves. And so it, it's this word pupa, which is, um, or, or pupilla, which is a little girl doll or like a small person, the diminutive form. So I think it's... Yeah, I mean, and a doll is sort a of weird, like a... weird, yeah. So, so how does this... Uh, actually, I think maybe I can figure this out. But we also use the word pupil for a student. Yeah, so, so pupa or, and, and pupilla is is a doll or a puppet or an undeveloped thing. And so Mm. that's where those words come from. Mm -hmm. But I wanted to read you a quote from Plato. He said, Self-knowledge can be obtained only by looking into the mind and virtue of the soul, which is the diviner part of a man, as we see our own image in another's eye. Isn't that beautiful? I love it. I don't know what it means. Isn't it an upside-down reflection? I actually don't know. Yeah, you're not allowed to get that close to me to stare into my eye. All right, Dan, I'm coming in. across the studio. Get get away. (laughs) Okay, so our winner this week was Sarah, um, and and she got the correct answer. Pupil. She also wrote, "Thanks for the great show, y'all have helped me, uh, y'all. I love that. Yeah. Y'all have helped me stay in and make it through some tough times in grad school. Now I'm theoretically defending in December 2017. So Yay, congrats, congrats. congratulations on winning the puzzle, but more congratulations on uh, being able to finish up. Yeah, well done. So uh, here's your clue for next week, Josh. This one's relevant for summertime. If you spot a snake with twisted colors, walk the other way. Its fish hook teeth are venomous. Read it one more time. If you spot a snake with twisted colors, walk the other way. Its fish hook teeth are venomous. Remember, I'm looking for a scientific word described by the clue. In this case, it's a genus and species. Oh, jeez. Oh, you love these. Once you get it, you'll find the literal meaning of that science word as a phrase in the clue itself. If you think you know the answer, email it to puzzle at hellophd.com. We'll randomly select a winner from all the correct responses and send the lucky puzzler an Amazon gift card. All right. Thanks, Dan. This was a great discussion this week. And if you have a question or topic idea, we'd love to hear it. You can email us at podcast at hellophd.com, send us a tweet at hellophd, or leave us a message on the Facebook page. If you like the show, you can leave us a review on iTunes. We love the feedback, and it allegedly helps new listeners find the show. If you'd like to support the show, you can become a patron. Simply go to our website, hellophd.com, and click on the Become a Patron button, or visit patreon.com slash hellophd. We would certainly appreciate the beer money and wanted to take this moment to give a thanks to our current patrons. Give a thanks to Lynn, Arlen, Paul, and Rob. 
All right. Thanks so much, everybody. And we will see you in a couple weeks. See you next time, Dan. <laughs>